Good morning. How you guys doing? Okay. It's good to be with you guys. For those of you who are joining us online, uh, welcome to you as well as Des already said. Welcome to you as well. Uh, as Des read, we are we are in this series that we've been in. This is our third week now, Psalm ninety, and we're going to be in this almost all the way up to Easter. Uh, so we we still have. Uh, five weeks left in this in this series together, and so far we've been walking through the first half of this psalm. If you've been if you've been here, uh, you've heard me say it's broken into two parts, right? You have the the first half and the second half, which I that, I know that's surprising. There's two parts, and there's a first half and a second half. I know, Josh, stop saying dumb things already. You're, we're off to a bad start here. I'm saying things that just already make sense. It all hinges there on verse 12, right? 12 is kind of like the, the, kind of the thesis of the psalm where everything kind of begins to shift to the second half. And so we've been sitting in the first half of the psalm, uh, which has been, as, as has already been remarked, it's been heavy, all right? It's been, it's been kind of a beatdown uh, the, uh, the first two weeks and now uh, going into week three. Uh, week one, we talked about how, how big and how vast and how eternal our God is. He is he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the creator of all things. And then, and then Moses goes on to say, you are turned man to the dust. Moses is stacking the majesty of God next to the dust of man. This is who we are. And, we, and we've said the, the, the world around us says, man, there's value. You are worthy and you are righteous and you are good. And there's so much value. You're strong and you're beautiful and you're courageous. You can do it. You can get it done. You can achieve. Get out there and get after it. But the Bible says, no, 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 you are dust. And to dust you will return. And we made the argument in week one that apart from Christ, that's actually true. Outside of Christ, there is no meaning and there is no purpose. There is no worth and there is no value. Outside of Christ, when you stack the holiness of God next to you, there is just, there's just nothing there for you. And then we went on to week two and we said not, not only is there, is there limited worth and limited value, right? It, it, there's limited time. Our lives are so fragile and so temporary, right? Moses says our years are like a flood. They're just, boom, they're just gone. Like a dream, you just you wake up and it's over. You have this great thing and there it was and then boom, it's just gone. James says like a mist, like a vapor. It comes into existence and from the moment it comes into existence, it's, it's already departing, it's already going away. And again, culture says don't think about that, right? You have 30 years, like 30 years is such a long period of time. Think of all you're going to do. Think of all you can achieve. Think of all the places you can go. Think of all the money you could make, right? The titles you could gain. There's so much out there in the distance in the future. Think about that. Don't think about how short life is. There's pain in counting and numbering our days. Don't, don't do that. But we've said again and again and again, it's so important for us to do the hard work of sitting in the first half of this psalm. In this doctrine, in this theology, posturing our minds and our hearts on who God is and who we are. If we're ever going to get anything, if we're going to get the fullness out of the second half of the psalm, you've, you've got to wade into the first half. Last week I said it's like a guy on an airplane, right? You sit on an airplane, a five-hour flight, and you sit next to this guy, and you strike up conversation. And you talk about all kinds of things. You talk about the weather. You talk about sports, right? The, the Buccaneers and the, and the Kansas City Chiefs. And you talk about everything that's going on in the world. You talk about politics. And you just have a great, you know, normal conversation with the guy uh, sitting next to you. And then you, the, fl- the flight lands and you're debarking, debarking the plane. And, and somebody looks at that guy and says, oh, my goodness, 
it's you. Like, you're that guy. You, you, you are the guru of insert whatever you want, whatever, whatever you're into. You're, you're the world-famous golfer. You are, you are a world-famous musician. You're a world-famous writer. Oh, my, I can't believe you're on, you've been on the plane the entire time. This is amazing. It's so nice to meet you. And you're thinking, I just sat next to the, this guy for five hours, and all we talked about was the weather. Think of how much more could you have gained if you would have just known? How, how much more wisdom and insight could you have received if you would have just known? The first half of the psalm is us knowing who God is, knowing who we are, that we might receive the fullness of the second half of the psalm. And next week, friends, next week, hey, next week, listen, we come to verse 12. Next week is the week, right? This is the one we've been waiting for. I can't wait. We, get, we actually get to the middle of it. We get to the verse 12 and everything begins to shift Towards the second half of the psalm, it's going to be so great, it's going to be so good, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing, I can't wait. But that's next week. This week, we come to the third subject that nobody else wants to talk about. One more week. One more thing to endure. It only gets worse for us today. Happy Sunday. It's going to be a good one. Here we go. Psalm 90, Desiree just read it for us, but I'm going to read uh, verses 7 through 9 again. This is our text for this morning, just kind of set our minds on it. Here we go, verses 7 through 9. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. So again, here we are. We come to the third topic that nobody wants to talk about. Just don't talk about it. Just don't bring it up. Don't address it. We don't want to deal with it. Nobody wants to think about it. We avoid it like the plague. Just stop talking about it right now, Josh. I don't want to go there. The wrath of God. That's where we're going today, friends. That's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to give our time to. The wrath of God is something that must not be spoken of. The wrath of God is something that must not be preached. If you want to grow your church, don't preach on the wrath of God, baby. Just don't, just don't go there. Don't do it. We're going there. We do not want people to ever think about the wrath of God because they will certainly become unsettled. And they may even stop loving him. And so just don't do it. Don't, don't, don't do it. This is what we've done. J.I. Packer, the great theologian in his amazing work, Knowledge of the Holy, writes on the wrath of God, and he says this. He says, the modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Right? Don't talk about it. Right? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yes, God has got some wrath, but he's more loving than wrath, right? That's who he is. Play it down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much of it. To an, age which, to an age which unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed and pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. The fact is that this subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. Just don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Even right now, some of you are squirming. You're like, this is awkward already, and I am, it just makes me so excited. Like, I just love it. Like, I, I, just, I can see it on your face. You're like, please stop. I'm like, this is awesome. All right. Generations, generations now have stopped. We've stopped writing on it. Go try and find a book written on the wrath of God in the past 10 years, past 20 years, past 30 years. Good luck. We've stopped preaching on it. We've stopped thinking about it. 
don't want to engage with the wrath of God. Rather, we have sold and bought a lie. You sold it. You've sold it. I promise you have. If, you, if you've been around, you've sold it. And you've bought it. Here's the lie. God loves everyone. God loves everyone. That's what we sell. That's what we teach our kids, right? And the saying goes like this. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. He loves everyone. Just this past week, my, my, I was having a conversation with, with Winston. He's my seven-year-old son. And, and I can't remember exactly what the conversation was initially about. But he, says, he says to me, he says, Dad, Dad, that's because God loves everyone, right? And I looked at him and I crushed him. I said, no, buddy. God does not love everybody. Don't, don't believe that. Don't, don't believe that. I do not want my son to believe that. And you don't want your kids to believe that either. You may think you do, but you don't. You don't want them to believe that. I'm going to show you all of the reasons why today. Not all of the reasons. I'm going to show you some of the reasons why you do not want your kids to grow up believing that. Number one, it's not true. Why would you want them to believe something that's not true? It's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that. Look what the Bible says. Psalm 5, 5 and 6 says this. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. Does God love everybody? No, yeah. Psalm 5, 5 is pretty clear. Verse 6. You destroy those who speak lives. The Lord abhors. He is disgusted with. He hates, despises the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the ones who love violence. Does it sound like he loves everybody? No. Not according to Psalm 11, verse 5. Malachi 2, 16 says this. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord. But God, God Hates the sinner, but he loves the sinner. No, no, he, he, he covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves and your spirit and do not be faithless. You see, we've, we've sold this lie and we've bought this lie that God loves everybody. But when you buy that lie, so much of the things that you value about God break down. And that's what I want you to see today. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot diminish the wrath of God. You can't do it. And I, and I know it's hard. I know, I know there's... Uh, the, the already this is kind of a hard pill to swallow, but you can't diminish the wrath of God. I want to give you two main reasons why we diminish the wrath of God, why we reject it, why we've chosen to ignore it. Number one is this. We simply don't understand it. We don't understand it. We, don't, we can't grasp the wrath of God. We don't wrap our minds around God. For so many of us, wrath, we, when we think of wrath, we picture your dad just blowing his top right? It's the person just gets angry with you, right? It's your boss at work or your spouse or so, somebody in your, in your family, your sibling, somebody you know that just has a short temper. It's always just ready to like hulk out on you. Like they're just angry all the time, right? That's wrath. It's the person whose pride is wounded. And so they lash out at the person who's wounded their pride because they want to make them feel the same thing, the same amount of pain. That's wrath. It's the person who's got a short fuse and a short temper, but this is not God's wrath. This is human wrath. And the truth is, if you're honest, we've all tasted it. You've experienced that. You've sat underneath that. You've been there when somebody has lashed out at you in that way, unjustly, or maybe even some, there was some just 
part in that. You did something that deserved a little bit of anger. But the truth is, you've experienced that. Have you not? Am I the only one that's ever experienced that? Okay, all right. And here's the other truth. If you're honest with yourself, you've dished it out. Yeah? You've dished it out. You've gotten unjustly angry at somebody. Maybe it's a coworker who, who, who messed up. They didn't make the sale. They dropped the ball. They lost the client. God, makes you so angry. You gave them an assignment. It was a simple thing. Why couldn't they just get it done? And they lashed out at them. You come home, you had a bad day at work, and your, your spouse says something, and it's not even mean, it's not even harsh, but the way that you took it, the way you received it, oh, anger, rah. Your kid spills a cup of milk, and you fly off the handle. I may or may not be speaking from experience, okay? That may or may not have ever happened in my house multiple times, okay? It's just, it's just, it's just the kids spill things. That's what they do, but golly, man. We've dished it out. This, however, is not the wrath of God. God's wrath is completely foreign to us. It's unlike any of those things. It is not that. It's not that at all. We, we misunderstand it. We do not grasp it. We can't understand it. And therefore, because we don't understand it, we push it away. We bury it. We don't speak of it. And as a result, things like universalism are birthed, right? This idea that everybody goes to heaven because God, God's not wrathful. Yes, okay, he's wrathful, but, but he's more loving than wrath. So, so he, ha- he loves everybody, and he, he hates sin, but he loves the sinner, and so, so he's going to send everybody to heaven. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says again and again and again. It's not true. But we want to bury it, and we want to suppress it, because we don't want to think that that's what God's life. Like, here's the truth. This is what's freeing, and I want to get to this this morning. Listen, that's not what he's like. He's not like that at all. That's human wrath. That's not who he is. But that doesn't mean that he is not a wrathful God. So two different things. You see, God's wrath in the Bible is always judicial. Cruelty is wrong. It's immoral, right? To treat somebody like that unfairly is it's wrong. But what we see in the Bible is that each person who experiences the wrath of God is receiving that which they expressly, rightly, truly deserve from one who is totally pure and holy. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 2. He says, in Romans 2, verses 3 through 8, he says, Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you really think? Like, you think, uh, th- that person is so wrong in their wrath and their anger, and uh, I can't believe they would do that. Do you think that you who do the same thing are going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of, the, of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Right there, that shoots a, the, a massive hole in the bottom of the ship of universalism. Right? God's kindness and his patience and his forbearance exist for one purpose, to lead you to the place of repentance. It's not a permanent thing. It's a temporary thing. It's there as his grace towards you. But because, you're, you, because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory 
seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You see, God judges, but he judges impartially. Perfect fairness. You, you can't wrap your mind around that. Perfect fairness. Perfect purity. You and I simply cannot do this. God's wrath is not like your wrath. You've never been judged perfectly. And you've never judged anyone perfectly. You've never repaid everyone according to what they've done exactly, perfectly. But this is the wrath of God. It's perfect. And because we don't understand it, we want to clean it up. We just don't want God to be like an angry dad. And here's the good news. He's not. That's never who he was. But in our minds, the picture that we paint. And so we have to change him. We have to change God. We have to, he has to be somebody different. Yet we're so dull and so, so, so short-sighted, we can't see that the wrath of God is inextricably linked to all of the other virtues of God that we want to hold up as beautiful. We just don't want him to look like an angry dad. I don't want my friends to think that I gather on Sunday to worship an angry dad. And so I suppress it, and I bury it, and I don't talk about it, and I don't want to engage in it. I don't want anybody to know. Here's the good news. He's not like an angry dad. But at the same time, in suppressing his wrath, in, in diminishing it, in burying it, in hiding it away, you also hide away the fullness of all the other things that you want him to be. Let me show you. Number one is holiness. God is holy, not wrathful. That's what we'd say, right? Look how beautiful he is. Look how pure he is. Look how wonderful he is. He's holy, not wrathful. But you cannot... Hold up God's holiness unless you hold up his wrath. God is pure and completely holy. He is pure. He's completely holy. When he created the heavens and the earth and everything in the earth and everything under the earth, he says, it's good. It's good. And he created it holy and pure and so good richness of delight. In the garden, there is, no, there is no mourning. There is no sorrow. There is no impure longing. There's only the desire for what is right and the desire for what is good. The longing for more of what is right and the more of what is good. There, there is no impurity. He created it holy and good. And this is the life with which you were meant to live in. This is the space in which you were living. You were never meant to taste sin. You were never meant to know what that is. You were never meant to do any of those things. Because he's holy. And he is good. You were meant to experience true friendship and love and peace and delight and delicious food, and laughter. Friends, and every time you experience even a glimpse of those things, you are tasting what the holy God has created you to experience. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. That is what is at his right hand. That's what he wants for you. And so what do you think a holy God does when someone destroys that which is perfect? that which is wonderful, that which is beautiful? What, what does he do when sin ravishes all of the things that he has created to be wonderful and sweet and good for you? What, what, what emotion is he moved to? 
Think of yourself for a moment. You spent hours and hours and hours creating this wonderful thing. I don't know what that thing is. Maybe it's the perfect meal, a perfect dinner. Maybe it's a piece of art, a beautiful painting. I don't know what it is, but you gave yourself to this thing, and you created it. And someone comes in, and in an instant, in a moment, they drag it through the mud, they destroy it. What emotion are you moved to in that? Is it not right that you were moved to that motion? Is it not right that God is moved to anger when he sees the destruction of that which is right and good? Think about it for a moment. The truth is, is that you do not want a wrathless God. You don't. You don't want a wrathless God. You don't want a God that loves everybody. You, you don't want that. Think for a moment. The person, the person who, who sells children into sex trafficking, enslaves kids, would it be okay with you if God put an end to that by pouring out his wrath on that individual? Yes, it would. You would be totally okay with that. The person who incites mass genocide on an entire race or ethnic group. Would it be okay if God put an end to that by, by exercising his wrath? Would that be okay with you? Of course it would. Yes, please. I don't, I don't want God to love it. I want him to put an end to that. The rapist. The person who says, I, I will violently assault women and to gratify my own wicked sexual desires. Is it okay with you if God puts an end to that? By dishing out a little bit of his wrath? Yeah. The truth is, we want that. We're okay with that. And, and next to his holiness, he must move against it. This is the good news. Our God is holy, and so therefore he will put an end to that. Our God is holy, and so therefore that will not stand before him. He is holy, and so therefore when he sees the things that are ravishing and destroying that which is good and right for you and for me, he steps in. He says, no, 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 that's not happening. I will destroy those. I will destroy the evildoers, those who love violence. I'll put an end to that. He says, I will put it in that because he is holy. A.W. Pink says it this way. He says, the wrath of God is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. That's what his wrath is. It is his holiness stirred to activity against sin. When sin is exposed to his holiness, his holiness says, that's not okay. It's not okay. It's not a right. I will put an end to that. That's what the wrath is. And so every time in Scripture that we see the wrath of God, it is inflicted against sin. That which comes against His holiness. You cannot have a holy God without a wrathful God unless there is no sin. Before Genesis 3, there is no wrath. After Revelation 21, there is no wrath. But everywhere in between where there is sin, you must have wrath because He's holy. Not because He's angry. Because He's holy. God is the holy maker of all things. He created all things beautiful and wonderful, and you and I have daily executed acts of destruction on that beauty. This is our sin. And if he is not wrathful, then he is not holy. You see, this is the thing that we miss, we fail to see, is that on our best day, on our best day, 
It's you. You are the one who is underneath his wrath. You see, what we do is we stack ourselves, we use ourselves as the measure. And we stack ourselves next to the, the genocide maker, ne- next to the child trafficker, next to the rapist. We say, look, I'm actually not that bad. I'm not that bad, so God's wrath is not against me because look how bad they are, right? Surely God loves me, but no, 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 I want his wrath to be on them. I just want his wrath to be on me, but you are not the measure. God is not stacking you next to them, right? What Paul says in Romans, we just read it a minute ago. He is judging each one according to their works. He is stacking you next to himself. That's what he's stacking you next to. He's not stacking you next to them. And when the God of all things stacks you next to his holiness, what does he see? Someone who is daily inciting violence against what is pure and holy and beautiful. This leads us to the second reason why we bury the wrath of God and why we do not want to think about it and why we do not want to engage in it. Please stop talking now, Joshua. Just let me go home and watch a football game. All right? The number two reason is this. When we think about it, we come to the conclusion that we are, in fact, under it, deserving of it. We're deserving of it. There's no way around it. If God is holy and I'm sinful, and if, and if, his, ho- and if his wrath is his holiness coming alive against my sin, then I'm deserving of it. I'm underneath it. We're a guilty people. We just acknowledged a minute ago that we have unjustly dished out our own bit of human wrath, but that's just scratching the surface of our sin. Look at Psalm 90 again with me, verses 7 through 9. I'm going to read it again for us. I'm going to throw up here on the screen for us. For who? For we. We are brought to an end by your anger. And by your wrath, who? We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Who's the subject of God's wrath? Yeah, we are. Now, so many of us in the room say, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, but not me. Yeah, yes, yeah, okay, yeah, but not me. Like, not, not me. Listen, who's writing the psalm? Moses. And in the beginning of the psalm, look in your Bible, in the beginning of the psalm, how is Moses described? Say it, somebody said it. Man of God. It says right there in your Bible, Moses, the man of God. Right before verse 1. And Moses is lumping himself into this. We, our. If Moses doesn't see himself as free of this, how do you see yourself as free of this? He can't be. It can't be. So often we hide God's wrath behind our imaginary wall of our own righteousness. But I'm a good person. I've done good things. Surely God loves me. But if Moses can't say that, I can't. Neither can you. Jonathan Edwards preached um, a famous sermon. His most famous sermon is called, it's entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I just... That's going to win you right there. I can't wait to read that one. Uh, and it's, but actually, in fact, 
um, it was mass-produced. It was, it, was, it, was, it was written, typed up, and just printed again and again and again, spread throughout all of New England. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, for those of you who don't know, was a Puritan preacher um, in, in the 1800s and, and just printed again and again and again. And it spread throughout all of New England, and so many people came to faith in Jesus, kind of brought to their knees by this sermon. And it was really this kind of illustration. This, this is one massive illustration of God kind of dangling you over the pit of his wrath and holding you there. And the point is not, the point is not uh, hell. I mean, that's very much a, a picture in the sermon. But the point is this, God's holding you there. There's this line, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but there's this line that says his wrath has bent back the bow, and the arrow is his justice. And the only thing keeping the arrow from being drunk with your blood is his good pleasure. The Puritans just had a way of saying things um, that I just don't. Um, it's good pleasure. He is holding you. He is sustaining you. He is calling you to repentance. That's a sermon for another day. In the sermon, Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, almost every natural man that hears of hell, that's you and me, almost every single one of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, flatter himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he, in what he has done and what he is now doing and what he intends to do. Listen, look at all I've done. Look at what I'm doing now. Look at where I'm serving. Look at where I'm volunteering. Look at, I have all these plans on things, the good things I'm going to do for people. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that, that his schemes will not fail, surely not me. They hear indeed that there are few, but there are few, there are but few saved, and that the greater part of men that have died hitherfore are gone to hell. But each one imagines that he lays out matters better for his own escape than others have done. I know that most people are going to hell. I get that. I know. I've read my Bible, but not me. I figured it out. I know what to do. He does not intend to come to that place of torment. He says within himself that he intends to take effectual care to order matters so for himself as to not fail. I've got this. I know. Listen, I know most people, most people will never turn to Jesus. But I've got it figured out. What Jonathan Edwards is saying is most of you in the room think you're in the clear. You think you're good. You think you've got it. You think you've got this all figured out. We convince ourselves with flattery. Surely not I. I've given so much money. I've served so much time. I've given so much time to the church. I've served in kids ministry for years. I've done all kinds of good things. I've gone on mission trips. I've been around the world telling people about Jesus. I've done all these good things. Surely not me. Surely not me. I've served at the church. I'm a pastor. Surely not me. God will not let me. For sure I'll go to heaven. This person has forgotten the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah says, we have all, all, every one of us have become like one who is unclean. And all, every single bit, all of our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind, take us away. That line right there, that's exactly what Moses is saying in Psalm 90, right? Our days pass away like a sigh. 
Like a leaf, our iniquities take us away. It's all exposed before God. There's nothing there. And all of your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All of your righteous deeds are just gross to him. All of it. All the things that you would say, look at what I've done, look what I've achieved, I've got these plans, look at all the things I've done, look what I'm doing now, look what I'm going to do in the future. All of it to him is disgusting. He looks at it and says, yuck. Like, what have you done that's so good? Well, I've served in the kids' ministry for, for years. Blah. I've given all kinds of money. And like, what I've done. Blah. Like, it's all just gross to him. It's nasty. What have you got? Like, what's going to save you? What have you done? Nothing. The person who's banking on themselves has forgotten the words of Paul in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, or by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By our very nature, we are under the wrath of God. There's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to change it. All of our days pass away under his wrath, Moses says. All of them. There's nothing you can do to change it. We are children of his wrath. So number one, we fail to grasp and understand the wrath of God. We just can't wrap our mind around it. So we just say, I don't want to think about it. Number two, we realize that we're actually, if we actually do think about it, we realize that we're under it, we're deserving of it. So again, I just don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. So we create ways and convince ourselves that this cannot be who our God is, and this cannot be our condition. It's not like that cannot be true. It cannot be who God is, and that cannot be my condition. That's not right. That's not math. So we create new ideas. In a world that says happiness is ultimate, that is the ultimate goal, happiness. You don't talk about the wrath of God, because there's nothing happy there. Nothing happy there. God's love sells, not his wrath. I said earlier, if you want to grow a church, don't preach on the wrath of God. Preach on his love, how loving he is, sweet he is. I, I, people say all the time, it's like, I mean, I love Jesus, and I, want, and I love the Gospels, and I want, to, I want to hear more about Jesus. Don't, don't preach on the Old Testament. Like, God in the Old Testament seems so angry and so grumpy. I don't, I don't like that. You know what Jesus talked about far more than he talked about the love of God? The wrath of God. Far more than the love of God, Jesus talked about the wrath of God. It's what we're sold and we're selling ourselves. Again and again and again, we sell this and we buy it. God is loving and we are good people worthy of our love, right? The Bible says God is love. He is love. He can't be wrathful. He can't be wrathful, right? If he's loving, right, he can't, he can't be angry and loving at the same time. Friends, what you don't understand is this. You cannot have love without wrath. You cannot have love without wrath. Now, you can have wrath without love, for sure. We described it earlier, right? The, the angry dad is constantly angry all the time, right? The, the boss who just, you come in on Monday and he's just fired up because you, you messed something up. You dropped the ball, right? You can have wrath without love, but you cannot have love without wrath. You can't. You can't have love without wrath. You want to see my full love on display? You want to see my full, 
fury of my love. Touch my boys. Go ahead. You may be bigger than I am. You may be stronger and you may be tougher. But I will pour out my love on your face. Okay? I, listen. I will gladly, gladly lose my job and spend days in jail because I love my boys. You want to see the full fury of my love? Touch my wife. Go ahead. See what happens to you. You might take me, but you are, you are I will cause you pain. I will, I will put an end to whatever it is that you're doing. Okay? Listen. And here, here's the fascinating thing about it. it is the measure of wrath is directly linked to the measure of love every time. Every single time. It's directly linked. You can't, you can't separate them. Right? This past summer, my car was broken into in, in Davis County. Did you know that happens? I'm from Chicago. Like, your car gets broken into all the time in Chicago. It's just like a normal, it's like a daily thing. It's like whatever. Like, you, you leave cheap CDs in there just to, so you can laugh that they stole, like, Backstreet Boys or whatever. Like, ah, sucker. You don't even know. But in Davis County... That doesn't happen, but it does happen, it turns out. My most valuable earthly possession was in, was in my bag, and my bag was taken. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't like monetary value. It was mean, meaningless to you. It doesn't mean anything. But to me, oh, deep value, deep value. Now, this person, they could, have, they could have stolen my entire car, and I would have been okay. Yeah, yes, I'd have been bummed. Yes, I'd have been ticked. Yes, there'd be like a little bit of wrath in me if I could get my hands on them. But ultimately, it's just a car. There's insurance. It's going to be okay. No big deal. But you take my most valuable earthly possession and you put it in that car, and that's what gets taken. If I could get my hands, I mean, I tried so hard. I tried to get my, I wanted to see the security photo. I just wanted to see the person's face. I wanted to just hunt them down and find them. They don't know what they have. They don't know. They have no idea. But the, the measure of wrath is directly linked to the measure of love. The more you love something, the more wrath is poured out when that thing is taken or when that thing is hurt, when that thing is destroyed. And the truth is, is I, I'm not an angry person. My friends can tell you, I don't, I don't walk around. I'm not grumpy all the time. I'm not just, just waiting to like just get, jump on anybody. That's not how I'm, I'm a pacifist, man. I don't believe in violence. I don't, I don't believe war is right at any cost. I don't. I don't think it's okay. I don't think that a human life should be taken for any reason whatsoever. Yes, I'll pour out my wrath on your face, but I wouldn't take your life. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I'm not angry. I'm loving. Look what the psalmist says in Psalm 145 about our God. He says this. He says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. How do you take that and stack it next to the wrath of God? How can God be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and be so wrathful? How can this be? Friends, if God never got upset with sin, it would mean that he doesn't love you. If God never got upset with your sin, it would mean that he doesn't love you. 
If God does not hate the things that do violence to your soul, if he does not hate the things that destroy your family, destroy your marriage, destroy your relationships, if he does not hate those things, then he does not love you. If God does not pour out his wrath on those things, then he does not love you. But the good news is that he does love you. And not only does he love you, he loves you more, more ferociously than anyone has ever loved you. You may think you love your spouse, and you may think you love your kids, but it pales in comparison to the love with which he loves you. You cannot comprehend it. You cannot wrap your mind around it. He loves you with a fierce and ferocious love. And so what does he do? Psalm 90 verse 8 says this, You, God, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. He exposes your sin. In his great love for you, he wants to see it all. All of your sin. Every ounce of the thing that is doing violence to you, every ounce of the thing that is destructive to your marriage, every ounce of the thing that is destructive to your joy and delight, he says, I want to see it all. Lay it before my holy eyes. I want to see it. Your secret sins in the light of his presence. I want to see it all. Show it to me. And the things that you have done that you think nobody knows, the things you've said in your car, the things you've watched in the late hours of the night, the things that you have done that have been suppressed deep within you, that you just don't ever want to think about. He sees it all. He says, I want to see it all. And he rips it out of you and brings it into the light of his presence. And you are fully exposed, fully known before them. There is nothing that you have done that he does not see. He says, I want to lay it before my holy eyes. I want to see it all. I want to know everything that has ever done violence to your soul. I want to know everything that has ever brought destruction to the beauty that I have placed within you. I want to see it all. Show it to me. And he lays his holy eyes on it. And in love, he exposes our sins. And his wrath is kindled against it because he loves you. And what does he do with your sin? He does exactly what a loving and just God must do with it. He destroys it. He crushes it. He brings it to nothing. He punishes it by laying it on himself. By laying it on himself. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be your sacrificial lamb. To absorb his wrath. To be the one who would take the wrath of God in your place. As Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 6 say, But he, Jesus, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the beating, the flogging that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every single one of us to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just as much as Moses in 7, 8, 9 uses inclusive language, Isaiah does in Isaiah 53, 5 through 6, in describing what God has done to our sin by pouring out his wrath on his son. You want to know the full offense of your sin? You want to know how offensive your sin is to God? Look at the cross. You want to know how much God hates your sin? You want to see the full fury of his love for you? You want to see how much he hates your sin? Look at the mutilated son of God. Look at the cross. That's how much God hates your sin. That's how offensive it is to him. That is the full wrath of God poured out right there. But you want to see the full fury of his love? Look at the cross. It's all right there. You want to see how much he loves you? You want to see his full love on display for you? Look at the cross. Where he poured out his wrath on his son instead of you. You cannot have the love of God without the wrath of God. And the wrath of God magnifies his holiness, and it magnifies his love. It is not something to be suppressed. It is not something to be buried. It is not something to be ashamed of. It is not something to be forgotten. It is to be held up, to be meditated on, to be pushed forward so that we might stand in awe of his holiness and stand in awe of his love. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. We read it earlier, right? We are all by children. Uh, we, are, we are all by nature children of wrath, with the rest of mankind. He goes on in the very next verse, he says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, there it is again, inclusive language, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. This is not because of any of your righteous deeds. This is not because of any amount of money you gave. This is not because of any time that you've served. This is not because of any, any volunteer thing that you've done. This is not because of a position you've held. It has nothing to do with any of that. All of our salvation is wrapped up in the wrath of God poured out in Christ in love for you. That you might know the immeasurable, immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that, he, that we should walk in them. Friends, I don't want you to mishear me. I don't want you to mishear me. If we are not in Christ, then your days will pass away under his wrath, as Moses says. This is not, this is not for those who are outside of Christ. Those who have not surrendered their life fully and completely to him. God must execute his wrath on sin because he's just, because he's holy, because he loves us. He must. He must it will either be executed on Christ or it will be executed on you. There is no other option. God is holy. He is love. He's perfectly just. And he will execute his wrath. It will not be thwarted. 
but it'll be executed either on you or it'll be executed on Christ. You will either die in your sin or you will die to Christ. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh, Moses says. For those who are in Christ, all of our days are lived under him, under Christ, under his righteousness, under his protection, under his holiness. He stands, he stands before God. His atonement covers us. Our days are lived under him, fully, completely surrendered to him. There's so much, there's so much wisdom in rightly giving thought to the wrath of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, Solomon says. And so I want to challenge you this morning to give yourself to the daily meditation on the loving wrath of God. To, to, to know who he is and to know who you are and to see how his wrath magnifies his love. How his wrath magnifies his holiness. And to, to come to the realization that you, you don't want a wrathless God. You don't. If you're honest with yourself, you don't. But to, to obtain the God that you genuinely want, to obtain the God that truly is, you must accept that wrath is a part of it. It's a beautiful part of it. It's terrifying. Yes. But when that wrath is poured on all the things that inflict violence, on that which is beautiful and holy and wonderful. I want it. I want it. And if my sin, if my sin is the thing that has killed my best friend, I want nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with it. And so let us be a people who live with a clear picture of the wrath of God and let's be a, pick, a people who live free of sin, that we might be a people who treasure Christ all the more. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you. Help us. Fix our gaze on the cross, that we might see the full fury of God's wrath poured out on you so that we might understand the full fury of God's love towards us. And in that, might we treasure you all the more with every moment and every second of every day that we give it thought. Let us never be a people who bury the wrath of God, but let us gaze fully into it and stand in awe and wonder of you. The one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise forever and ever. I pray these things in your sweet name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.